I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Wurundjeri people. I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I guess the challenging years are the years where we kind of seem to learn and grow as winemakers the most, Um, even though I'd take a beautiful easy vintage any year. (laughs) Um, They're not going to come every year. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. When we speak about the Yarra Valley region of Victoria, the name Yarra Yaring inevitably comes up. So too does the name Sarah Crow. Sarah is a winemaker at the very top of her game, although we've been saying that for many years now. With one foot in the vineyard and the other in the barrel room, Sarah is making some of the most important, highly awarded and talked about wines of Australia. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Shante. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for making the time, especially at, at a very busy time of your life at the moment. Crowy, I see you grew up in Wollongong. That's where I went to high school. Where exactly was your stomping ground? Uh, I grew up in Fig Tree and went to Fig Tree High. So, Yeah. Just around the corner. Amazing. I know. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I was at uh, Wollongong High School of the Performing Arts and I actually, I mean, everyone just associates if you're from anywhere near Wollongong, it's just Wollongong. Um, but I didn't know that that's where you were from. It's amazing. Isn't that funny? Yeah. No, I, um, yes, grew up there my whole life, born in Wollongong Hospital, but um, there's no grapevines in the Illawarra. So, um, <laughs> so I had to head to the Hunter Valley. Definitely. I remember the first time I heard that Heathcote was a wine region and I actually thought it was uh, just a little bit north and I was so excited, but not so much. (laughs) I get so confused sometimes now. I live in Victoria and and there's towns with the same names in New South Wales and people will talk about a town and I'm like, really? Is that there? And then I realise it's, you know, completely different state. (laughs) (laughs) So we need to hear a little bit about how you found your way into winemaking, Sarah. Uh, so I guess um, it was a little bit of an accident in that uh, I loved being outdoors um, and when I left high, when I left Fig Tree High, <laughs> I went and did a, um, an urban, urban horticulture course, I guess it was called from memory now, it was so long ago, um, and I used to work in garden centres, um, you know, selling plants and things. And after I'd been overseas and spent all my money, um, I decided to have a go in a vineyard because I assumed it was, you know, leaves and dirt and that's what I'd been working on so that it wasn't going to be too far removed. So I started working in the vineyard at first. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. When you were working um, at your plant store, were you thinking that you wanted to do kind of like outdoor landscaping or what was your thoughts before you kind of found that you were in a vineyard and that suited you? Uh, it was mostly for the home gardener, um, the the kind of the garden centres I worked in. And then I actually was working on an established tree farm up in the Southern Highlands uh, for a bit as well. And there was some propagation and all that kind of thing there. Um, and I guess, so I guess that was probably one step closer to an open, to an open paddock, I guess. Um, and, yeah, I had been overseas and that was when I saw my first vineyard and I thought, oh, maybe I can work in a vineyard back home. So um, I guess it was travelling and, and starting to 
you know, you go searching for yourself when you travel overseas. As I turned 23 in uh, uh, Istanbul. <laughs> um, yeah, and just, you know, was, had spent all my money. Well, was spending all my money, <laughs> but quit my job and, and just bought a one-way ticket to Istanbul. And I uh, didn't really know what I was going to do when I came home. Um, I think I kind of found that inspiration uh, in in the south of France a few months later. It sounds like the, the kind of Aussie thing that we do where we, you know, when we decide to go overseas, we want to do a big trip because it is so expensive to get out of Australia and get to Europe. So we kind of, yeah, want to do as much as we can. How long were you actually travelling for and where was the first vineyard? Um, you said it's south of France, but whereabouts in particular? Um, I mean, we all did that. Maybe it was a Wollongong thing. <laughs> We all kind of um, packed up our lives and I put all of my belongings in my grandparents' garage, sold my car um, and had a friend who was teaching English in Istanbul. So that was, was why we went there uh, as a first point of call. But we travelled through uh, the Middle East, so Turkey, Syria, Jordan, um, and then back to Asia, so Thailand. There was another friend working there. Um, and then I was travelling with my sister and she was coming home and she she ran out of money <laughs> and um and then I met up with another friend and we did Laos and then went to the UK to London and then that's when we went to France drove down into um into Spain and and back and then to America but when I say the south of France I I don't know <laughs> exactly where it was but we'd you know pull up and have a eat a baguette with some jam and um, just kind of like look over the landscape wherever we were and I was like wow these vineyards are really pretty because it was autumn time and um, so they had some beautiful autumn colours about them and so I think that's why it caught my eye um, and there was a lot of vineyards so um, lots of driving and, and lots of looking at beautiful vineyards I think was how it happened yeah Okay, and so then you decided to come home, which, yes, like we, like you said, you run out of money eventually and then think, oh, God, what am I going to do now? So when you came home, what was your next step after that? Um, so I didn't, didn't uh, get into Grapevine straight away. That's when I, I went to uni, actually. So um, Wollongong Uni, I was doing a, a Bachelor of Arts in uh, English History and was, was loving that. So then was a mature age student even. Um, but after a little while, thought, what do I do with this degree at the end? Like, you know, living on the beach and riding a bike to uni. And it was all so nice. But I started to think about uh, long term, what it would mean. And an old friend rang me. He needed a hand on this established tree farm for a little bit. So um, I, I went part time and then was working full time there. And then that was kind of coming to a close. So I was kind of forced to to make a decision, do I go back to doing this arts degree? Um, and I was, you know, I called one of my sisters going, oh, yeah, the, I think this business is wrapping up. And she said, oh, didn't you want to work in a vineyard? That's what you said when you came home. Oh, I don't know anything about grapevines. And she said, um, and she worked in a bottle shop at the time, part-time. And she said, oh, why don't you call Brokenwood? I hear they're really nice. Um, and so I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She said, there's this, this the guy, um, Ian Riggs, the, the winemaker, like I heard he answers the phone and everything. 
Um, <laughs> so when I called, Riggsy didn't answer. But, um, yeah, I, I met him not, not <laughs> too many weeks later. Amazing. I can't believe that. That's um, so happenstance, you know, the fact that she was working in a, in a bottle shop and then just kind of was like, and also to remind you, remember when you said you wanted to do something? That's amazing. So you called, you called Brokenwood, you popped your head around, I imagine. And did you, where, where did you start at Brokenwood? So when I called them that first time, I said, oh, hi, I'm a horticulturalist and I'd like to work in your vineyard. And the lovely Rebecca said, uh, oh, look, um, I'll just give you KB's mobile, he's our vineyard manager, um, and give him a call. Uh, so I did that and spoke to the uh, famous or um, Keith Barry, and he said, oh, that's, I've got about five weeks pruning work. Why don't you come on up? And so that's kind of how it happened. Um, and so I left the other job. I called him a few days later. Oh, is there a caravan park I can stay in? And <laughs> he said, oh, there's a, there's a bunkhouse here above the office. You can just stay here. And I'm thinking, who are these people? Why are they all so friendly and, and accommodating? And um, this is really weird. <laughs> uh, and, you know, now I know that most people in this industry are, are like this. And um, so I, I drove, uh, you know, a week later, um, my dad drove me a map of how to get to the Hunter Valley from Wollongong. And it was the longest, <laughs> the longest route he could have taken me. But anyway, thanks, Dad. <laughs> it got quicker over the years. And, um, yeah, I drove on up on a, on a Monday and, um, yeah, started working in the vineyard there with uh, KB. Incredible. I mean, welcome to rural hospitality, I suppose. But uh, I like the fact that you said it was a bit weird because you would have a bit of alarm bells going like, why are they just letting me stay there? Like. <laughs> What's that? They lure me there. <laughs> Gonna lock me in a cupboard. Is it a cult? Yes. Well, it is a cult. I know that now. But. <laughs> the best kind. So you end up staying at in the Hunter for twelve years, was it? Yeah. Yep. That's right. Amazing. And when was all your time spent in the um, in the vineyard, or how did that kind of come about that that you end up kind of staying in in what that one place for twelve years? So I worked in the vineyard for, it was a bit over six months, um, and by this time I was sharing a house with uh, Keith Barry's daughter, Katrina, who's now the vineyard manager there. She's um, taken over from her father's role. And um, she said to me, oh, you should go and work at Vintage in the Winery because we won't have much work once we finish picking. Um and suggested I go and talk to Jim Chatto, who I believe you've done a, uh, over the glass with recently. Yeah, yeah I should go and work down there. Um, so I, I got Jim's number and I went and um, had a meeting with him and he gave me my first vintage job. So I worked down there at First Creek for three months. Um, and they did offer me a full-time job, but the money was so bad, I decided to go back to Brokenwood and, and wing it as a casual for a little bit. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And, but when I went back to Brokenwood, there was, we were waiting for pruning, but also PJ needed a hand in the winery. Someone was heading back to um, Adelaide Uni to finish their degree. And so I went into the winery there for six weeks because their vintage is so extended with all the regions they source fruit from. 
Um, and then when that person came back, I said to PJ, does this mean I have to go back to the vineyard now? And he said, not if you don't want to. And um, about a, a year or two after that, he made me his assistant. So, yeah. What a legend. So great. Yep. <laughs> I love it. And then, look, eventually you moved to the Yarra Valley. Can you tell me a bit about what that move was like from the, you know, iconic Hunter Valley, kind of more moderate climate, and then move, deciding to move down to the Yarra Valley? What was your thought process on that? When I was at Brokenwood, I had been looking after their um, Beechworth intake um, for a number of years. So I would come to northeast Victoria for a month or so each year. Um, so the idea of being in Victoria wasn't too foreign, um, but I had just started to think about what my next move might be and where I wanted to make wine if it wasn't going to be in the Hunter. And a few months later, um, this job, the job was advertised and um, and I phoned Reid Boswood, who's my my our managing director and the winemaker at Kaysler and um, who I had met through friends in the Hunter um, at some, I don't know, seminar function, <laughs> something along, along the way. And we had a good chat and he said, oh, I'd like it if you applied. Um, and so I did. And then when they offered me the job, I guess, accepting it was easy, accepting the role to, at Yarra Yearing was very easy deciding to leave the Hunter Valley was quite hard. Um, they were like my second family and still are. So, um, you know, I'm still very close with, with all those people. Yeah, and you've kept really great ties with them and you still pop up uh, to the Hunter show when you can, when the world allows you to, <laughs> yes. um, which is amazing. Talk, talk us through just a little bit about the differences between making wine in the Hunter and making wine in the Arrow Valley. Yeah, I guess um, like both regions produce, um, you know, medium weighted wines. Um, so I guess the, the, on average, the alcohol levels are fairly similar, um, but the ripening down here happens much more slowly. Um, so in the Hunter, you know, the nighttime temperatures are warmer, etc., and the grapes keep kind of metabolising overnight and vintage happens um, really early in January now um, up there, whereas here just that those cooler nights generally um, kind of prolong that brightening period. And so we have more uh, natural acid retention because of those cooler nights um, and because the, the warmth and the sun, I guess, isn't quite as severe, we seem to uh, maintain or, or get these quite thick, skins um, across across the varieties, which means, which is why bunches and the use of bunches and whole bunch ferment um, here is so kind of popular, is that we tend to, the chemistry of the fruit here um, means that the integrity of those berries seems to last um, often throughout the ferment. So it just works really well here and it's a little bit harder when, when the, your skins are starting to break down. Um, so, yeah, the, the, that whole bunchy <laughs> characteristic and technique is quite a Yarra Valley thing um, just because of the climate. Yeah, and, and that makes a lot of sense. Can you tell us a little bit about the background and the history of Yarra Yaring? 
Yeah, so it was at the, there was a Yarra Valley wine region back from about the 1880s, I think it was, up until about 1923. Um, and all the grapevines were kind of returned to pasture. Um, it's it's a little bit hazy. Some people say economic downturn. I guess there'd been war. Um, vineyards weren't quite as uh, important to people. Um, and so there wasn't any commercial wine made here from, I think, 1923 was the last vintage. And then Yarra Yering's founder, Dr Bailey Caradus, came along and uh, planted grapevines here at Yarra Yering in 1969. And that was the... I guess, the forefront of modern-day Yarra Valley. So um, Reg Egan also planted some vines in 69, uh, but through that 69 to about 75, you know, a lot of the, the famous uh, vineyards were planted, like Mount Mary, Seville Estate, um, Yeringberg was replanted. Uh, so, yeah, it was really, he was at the at the front of this kind of modern Yarra Valley establishment. Um, and, yeah, an interesting fellow from all accounts, Dr Caradus. So he was a, a plant botanist. He wasn't a, a medical doctor. Um, and so I guess he had a really good understanding of plants and the importance of their site. And I think, you know, the single most important thing he did was choose this site here um, on this gentle north-facing slope uh, in the the foothills of the Warrenmate Hills. It's pretty beautiful. So I have I hadn't actually been, been down there, but I have heard it's absolutely stunning. I think it's great that you talked a little bit about that kind of um, what we that kind of vine pool scheme that happened, and because I think that 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 kind of dormant dormancy that happened over that time was um, it's a big part of the story of the Arab Valley, I think, and and looking at some of those original replantings that were um, so important to, to develop. The, the region. Um, let's talk a little bit about dry number one and two and the importance of these wines to the Yarra Yering offerings. Mm, yeah, they were the first uh, two wines made. Um, so our, our first vintage was 1973. So um, there was no commercial wine made in the Yarra for 50 years from 23 to 73. Um, and yeah, so these were the first commercial wines made in a really long time and so dry red wine number one um, came off block number one and dry red wine number two came off block number two and so block number one has Cabernet and Merlot planted in it and block number two has Shiraz and a little bit of um, Merlot and Marsan and so the two wines the naming is, it's a very strange way to name the wines, but I'm used to it now. But they connect those blends in the first kind of 25 years anyway. They connected the blends back to the blocks in the vineyard, which I think is, is really nice. Um, and then the, the varieties in those blends as the vineyard plantings expanded, um, they've grown quite a bit. So the dry red number one uh, would be is our Bordeaux-inspired blend and the dry red wine number two is our own inspired blend. Amazing. I had some uh, Yarra Valley Cabernet the other day and I 
was at home and it was one of those experiences where, you know, like you kind of want to swear and you get goosebumps and you're like, holy shit, this is good. And I think these days, you know, a lot of people are, are aware that there's some fantastic Chardonnay and there's some fantastic Pinot that we see in the Yarra Valley. But I always harp on about how important it is to really try these these style of wines and and connect um, that story of where the Yarra Valley's come from. Um, do you drink these type of wines a lot yourself? Oh, yeah, for sure. And and you're right, the reputation of the Yarra Valley was, was built on the back of, of these Cabernet-dominant blends. Um, and, you know, I guess mapping them out in the establishment kind of helps you map out the Yarra Valley a little bit as well. And, you know, the, the Yarra is quite a diverse uh, region in relation to kind of elevation and aspect, um, and it just kind of... If you think about the Yarra, there's such a diverse offering because the landscape is so diverse. But, yeah, it was really the reputation um, was built on the back of these, you know, clarets. And still today, so inc- such incredible wines. Um, in the Australian landscape of wine, how would you describe the wines that you make? Um, I, guess, I guess I what I'm trying to make is these the wines that have um, incredible fruit purity that show their environment more than their winemaker. So I really want to be um, making wines that are quite detailed but almost a little bit transparent, I suppose, where where you, you sense the vineyard and the place um, more than you do the hand of the winemaker. I, I agree with that, but I really wanted to hear what you had to say about that. Um, it makes a lot of sense, I think, when I was reading a little bit more about the history to connect you with being at the head of Yarra Yaring with your interest in horticulture and, and where you've come from and then also with um, Bailey Caradus and his kind of botanist inspiration that what happens in the vineyard and and really, you know, from the ground up is so important. And I think that you really do see those in, in, in the wines, but um, really interesting to hear you say it too. Uh in 2021, that was a year full of recognition for your hard work, being named Winery of the Year for the Real Review and Halliday Wine Companion. On top of that, Gourmet Traveller Winemaker of the Year, and then a million bajillion awards for the wines that you make. How does acknowledge- acknowledgements like that affect your life? Um, well, they make, uh, they, they certainly put um, recording podcasts on my calendar, <laughs> <laughs> which is also a reflection of, you know, COVID, I guess. Uh, it's harder for us to travel and sit in a room together. Um, yeah, look, it was an incredible year for for me personally and for the brand last year. Um, I guess w- what it's meaning is that um, also the wines are getting harder for people to access, um, uh, which is, I guess, a nice problem for us to have as a brand. Um, yeah, and I don't know, I, I guess probably it might be bringing more scrutiny <laughs> into the wines that came, that come after the 2019 vintage. Um, you know, people might be paying more attention to those at the same time, but, you know, it's just been such a nice recognition for the whole team and for everyone's hard work because, like, I'm sitting here talking to you and I'm watching the boys 
roll-up nets for the block that we're picking tomorrow. And it's hot out there. You know, it's 31 degrees and they've been picking and and it's even though I get to talk to these wards um, and about the wines, you know, there's a, there's a whole – there's a small team, but there's a team of people behind me um, that help make it all happen. So I think it was a really nice – year for everybody who works here or who has come through um, and felt like they had a hand in those wines at the same time. And you can blame me later when they ask why you got to sit in the air conditioning uh, doing the podcast <laughs> and weren't out there. <laughs> it's, it's work. <laughs> so is that where the Warramate, we were talking about accessibility to wines and and even though it's a wonderful thing that, you know, certain maybe on-premise have to have allocations of wine and but at the same time you want everyone to be able to experience wines and and not have to um you know wait years to get on a wait list for them is that where Waramate label came in or tell me a bit about that label yeah that's a vineyard that um is is the neighboring vineyard further up the hill so it kind of goes Yarra Yaring uh vineyard Waramate vineyard Coldstream Hills vineyard and um, it was planted, Dr. Caritas planted here in 69. The churches who, who lived up there went, that's a nice idea. Um, so they planted the following year in 1970. Um, and then the son had taken over and he's a, he is a local GP and he was just too busy. And so he called, um, called us and said, uh, I'm going to sell, are you interested? And, um, and we went, yep, for sure, because it's similar varieties, the same hill, dry grown. So the philosophies were all very much the same. And some really beautiful wine comes off that vineyard. Um, so it's a, it was a bit of a no-brainer at the time to buy it. And really, we just took, you know, a couple of panels out of the fence and drove the tractors in and, and we were away. So that happened in 2011. Um, and those, those vineyards... Well, those wines off that vineyard, I do make in a more accessible way. So I use more bunches, um, really looking for some, some fragrance and a bit more softness, so less new oak in those wines. Um, but I am in a bit of a similar situation with those as well because it's not a very big vineyard either. So the, whilst the Warramate wines are more accessible, you know, on the palate earlier and uh, price-wise... Um, there's, there's still not an endless supply of those wines either. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a similar problem that we have up there as well. Well, you just can't lay around waiting for wines to fall in your lap from Yarra Yarra and you've just got to get out there when they're released and buy them, which is, I think, the, the answer to this problem. <laughs> it's true, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a bit of a tough question, so I hope you can forgive me, but talking about strengths and weaknesses, what do you think your strengths are as a winemaker and what are your, some of your weaknesses? And now you can answer that in any way you feel fit. <laughs> mm, yeah, okay. Um, I'm, I guess, I don't know if it's a strength or a weakness, but uh, I am probably my own worst critic. <laughs> so um, I guess whenever I'm looking at the wine batches and, and blends, you know, um, is that the best it could be? Is there something I should have done differently if I had my time again? Um, what might I have changed? So, and, and that's an ongoing, the beautiful thing about wine is that it changes and evolves. And so that is a bit of an ongoing internal dialogue that I have. 
Um, I think my strength probably, particularly because we only make wine off the vineyards, vineyard that we own and farm ourselves, and having such proximity to the vineyard and my horticultural background and even my degree that I did part-time whilst working at Brokenwood full-time is a um, Bachelor of Applied Science in Viticulture over over the wine science degree. Um, and so I think my strength is that understanding of the vineyard um, that I have, uh, but all my practical experience, the, you know, probably 98% of my practical experience has actually been in the winery. Um, and so I think having that connection to the vineyard and the ability to look and understand the fruit and then adapt what we do in the winery to kind of suit the season is probably um, my strength. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I guess the other thing that's really important to me as a manager is to, to try and bring the whole team along for the ride. So making sure that everybody feels safe, um, respected and included um, is really important to me as well. Yeah, I mean, you're obviously doing many things right. And I was thinking about who might be tuning in listening. And I thought, you know, if I was a young winemaker, I'd tune in and I'd want a tip, some kind of tip from Sarah Crow. What's she doing right? <laughs> and what can I get out of this podcast? So that's where that kind of question came from, but beautifully answered. Um, what is the most rewarding part of your role and what keeps you doing what you do every day? Well, I love the, the diversity um, in a day and throughout the year and but also being connected to nature at the same time. So even though we're working in the, in the or I'm working in the winery most of the year, it's still this kind of organic living product um, that has come from the earth that we're working with. So that's, uh, that's a really beautiful thing. Um, that helps me get out of bed in the morning. Um, yeah, and I guess the challenging years are the years where we kind of seem to learn and grow as winemakers the most, um, even though I'd take a beautiful, easy vintage <laughs> any year. <laughs> um, they're not going to come every year. So, yeah, they're the ones where we kind of expand a little bit and, and reach out to, you know, our network of friends in the industry and say, hey, have you seen this before? What would you do? What's been your experience? Um, so, yeah, they help. Those challenging years definitely help keep us connected. And the wine industry, for the, for the main part, is a big community. And I, I imagine that that's so important. And like I said, in staying connected to the Hunter Valley, where, which has had such a big impact on your life, um, how do you stay connected to, to that community, um, even in COVID times where you can't travel? Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because we were so used to running into each other at um, seminars or wine shows, trade shows. Um, and, and, you know, I guess wine shows are a big part of that network or had been a big, big part of maintaining that network, um, but also growing that network. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a bit harder and I didn't mind, I actually quite enjoyed staying a bit closer to home um, for a change and not travelling quite so much. There was elements of, of lockdown I didn't mind. 
Um, but I did miss seeing people face to face. But you know, I had some some friends who we would have reg- regular Zoom catch ups and um, some seminar. Oh, sorry, working groups and things that I sit on, particularly for the Lenevans tutorial. We were having you know monthly. Um, working group Zoom meetings, and so it just kind of happened by us just trying to kind of keep the momentum um, going that we we would just catch up. But it was less. It was definitely less. Well, let's hope that we're seeing a lot more of the wine shows continue and and you do your fair share of wine judging around the country, that's for sure. So I hope that those can continue forward so that you do get that opportunity to catch up and have a drink with your fellow colleagues um what's on the next agenda what's on what's happening for you in the next couple of years any goals that you'd like to share with us uh no no kind of big big goals look we've got um a few new varieties that we've we've uh, sprinkled across the vineyard here so um seeing how they perform it's such a it's a, such a long game, this one, <laughs> you know. By the time you uh, plant something and, you know, get through that first, you know, couple of awkward vintages where it's a, a bit of a gangly teenager, I suppose, where the vines start to settle in, you know, that's a that's a five- or six-year um, turnaround. So uh, there's some, yeah, there's a few little things to, to play with and keep us excited um, but apart from that, I think just trying to make sure that we're respecting the history and the legacy here and continue to make particularly the dry red wine number one and dry red wine number two, um, you know, the best examples they can be of beautiful, cool climate Yarra Valley wines that, that also respect the history and, and show the vineyard. That's that's kind of, that's all I want to do. <laughs> Business as usual, but the best kind of business. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Sarah, I always ask um, everyone on the podcast, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, alcoholic or not, doesn't really matter, what would they be and why? Look, I would have to say um, I love starting the day with a good cup of tea um, and sometimes finishing the day with a good cup of tea. Uh, So I could probably, even though I love coffee, I could do with it live without that more than I could tea, I reckon. So tea has to be one of them. Then it's probably just uh, I would drink more Chardonnay than anything other, any other variety. Um, so Chardonnay, Chardonnay definitely has to be there. Uh, and just to, to balance things out, um, I need a red as well. So I'm, I'm going to say Pinot Noir. Perfect. I knew Chardonnay would be on your list. Um, but I was curious at the others. And is it uh, English breakfast tea, milk, no milk? Uh, look, I've, I've lived through all kinds of, um, you know, I have stages to really work it out. But at the moment, I'm, I'm, I'm largely English breakfast yep. with milk. No sugar? No sugar. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you. I feel you with that. A good cup of tea, just the right temperature, you know. You've got to get it in that sweet spot. I know. And then you don't want to over – and it's, it's only loose leaf for me. I'm a real tea snob. Um, so it has to be a loose leaf in a pot. Um, none of that tea dust in a bag. <laughs> I think the wine shows need to uh, take a little note of that, that we only want loose leaf tea for all judging from now on. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, we all want our own little teapot. <laughs> Perfect. Sarah, it's 
such an honor to have you on the podcast. Um, I really can't wait. Hopefully we'll be tasting wine again soon, perhaps at another show. Um, but I know it's so busy for you. So thank you for your time. Best of luck with the rest of Harvest. And uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a total honor. Oh, thank you for the invitation. It's been really lovely to chat. Thank you, Sarah. Cheers to you. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.